Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from week 57 of quarantine. From my eight-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a veritable death trap of half-finished Lego creations. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, two founding members of Blind Melon and one of the great guitar duos in all of rock, celebrating the release of the Shannon Hoon and Blind Melon documentary, All I Can Say, streaming now. Hello and welcome, Christopher Thorne and Roger Stevens. Hey, Mike, how you doing? I'm doing very, very well. So, such a pleasure to meet the both of you. It's honestly kind of surreal. I've been doing this for a while, and I'm not often awestruck, but I'm, I am a bit awestruck to be in your, uh, your virtual presence. Where are you? Aww. Where are you two gentlemen? I'm in Joshua Tree, California, out here in the desert in nice. my studio. Beautiful. You're the place all of us were trying to go a few weeks ago, and they had to throw up barricades to keep us out. Which yeah, shows- we were like, stay away, man. We don't want your COVID out here in the desert. Stay yeah. away. <laughs> you made the right call. Leave us to our cesspool. How about you, Rogers? Uh, I'm right outside Philadelphia, oh, okay. Swarthmore, Pennsylvania. But uh, I used to live in Culver City, actually. That was the first place I lived in California. Oh, really? Wow, you got yeah. some bad advice. It, right, yeah. Well, we couldn't, no one would, I mean, it was an easy, we, no one would rent us an apartment. When so. did you know, it's, it's nice down there now, man. It wasn't 20 years ago, but it's nice now. It's really nice in Culver City. We're, uh, we're, we're getting there. So how, were, were you guys in L.A. before Shannon or the other way around? I was, I moved out in 80, I moved out in 89 or 88, 89, something like that. Okay. And met, and met, met Shannon and Rogers out in Los Angeles. And how did you all meet? I don't know. Well, uh, I met Shannon, um, just through a mutual friend out in Hollywood. Uh, uh, there was a, a woman out there who had heard some demo tapes that, you know, a couple of songs that Brad and I had written and, and, uh, they uh, were trying to help us find somebody, and he he had came into town uh, uh, from Indiana, just and was I guess was staying with uh, Axl Rose out there or, or uh, people associated with him, and, and we ended up um, he, he came over, and uh, I think he was the second or third uh, singer that we had talked to, and you know I, we watched him. He sat and he sang. Uh, a uh, few songs and and I mean we were just immediately just you know gobsmacked by it you know it was incredible and I mean it was clearly you know a um a, 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 like a you know a star in the making type thing I mean he was already fully formed and um so uh we uh Brad had known Christopher for a while uh and they had been friends and uh they ended up um I think he ended up calling Christopher and asking him to come by too. Uh, that was, I mean, it all sort of fell together pretty quickly. We had a different drummer uh, at the time, but uh, that didn't work out. So I uh, called Glenn back in Mississippi and he was, I mean, he had his car packed and was moving to North Carolina <laughs> and just took a left turn instead of a right turn, basically. That was it. So stylistically, would you say, did you guys meet in the middle? What, you know, it's a very distinct thing that you were doing. It was very of 
the the moment, especially listening back, you can place it in the context of 90s music, but at the same time, it wasn't grunge. You know, it certainly wasn't Nine Inch Nails. It was a, a Southern sort of thing. It had a retro element to it. Was that a collaborative thing, or was that one person pulling every everybody else into their gravity stylistically? I think that was five different people pulling five different people in five different directions, and then, yeah. and then it, it ends up being Blind Melon, you know. I would say we were more influenced by the classic, you know, bands, the rock, you know, the classic rock bands of the 70s and stuff, more so than maybe some of the other grunge. We didn't really have the punk thing in us. Right. You know, grunge has like 25% punk rock in there. And I, I think we were more hippies in a weird way, you know, but yeah. somehow we're lumped into that, that world, which is a great world to be lumped into because there were, there were great records going on. You know what I mean? So. Sure, I don't yeah. know. If we, I mean, we had common reference points with with a lot of those groups, but also some different ones. And I think Christopher is exactly right. I mean, I didn't know anything. I mean, I came from a very small town in in Mississippi, and Christopher came from a very small town in Western Pennsylvania. Yeah. It just you know there wasn't that sort of thing happening where we came. I mean, there wasn't any sort of thing happening where I came. No. So. Um, you know that we we just kind of knew what was on the radio or what you accidentally heard from somebody, but there weren't a lot of people into music like contemporary rock music where I was from. So, um, yeah, we, we we definitely had a different approach. We certainly didn't feel like we necessarily sounded like a lot of those groups, but we, we saw didn't. the common references, and I think that's the same within this group. Sure. Uh, you know, we all. Uh, you know, what Christopher's saying is there were different directions and, you know, which is a blessing and a curse in a lot of ways, but it's also uh, that we didn't, uh, we, we also had that body of common groups that we liked or music that we liked. So um, we met there first. I was curious, it's unusual outside of a, a metal setting, I guess, for a singer to be primarily in falsetto. Did you ever just have a conversation with Shannon about how he's, he he sounded in that style? <laughs> yeah, he's singing in full voice. That's his. Um, yeah, he's actually he sings that in full voice. That's not falsetto. He just sings that high in full voice. Yeah, when I heard it, that for the first time, I, I thought you know he you know I thought wow he has a really sort of angelic voice. It's almost like a a, a female voice in a way, and um, it's really rare in in a, in a male singer to hear that sort of you know air tenor you know up there like that it, and you know it just um he, that that was him though i don't know though if it be, i ever heard him sing falsetto did you No, he didn't i don't know that he even knew about falsetto that was full voice though for sure yeah, that's just the way he did it you're blowing me yeah. away here yeah I, i'll tell you what if he and 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 i said this to christopher one once and we never actually got that on tape <laughs> You know, like if you sat in the room with him, if he and he played an acoustic guitar, it would knock your socks off because yeah. just the quality of his voice was just so beautiful. You know, in its unvarnished way. You know, I've was, enjoyed. You know, just fragile, but it was beautiful. Sure, you know, here, there, and everywhere, you'd buy some weird, dodgy, you know, European issued. Uh, CD of outtakes and stuff and just I heard so many different um, acoustic versions of Galaxy for example and it's just it's beautiful how they're it, they're all the same song but they're never exactly the same but in a, in a lot of ways those, those those poorly recorded acoustic things that weren't supposed to be released r reveal the, the the humanness of the voice some way in some ways better well, than a studio that's recording a good could point. yeah I mean I Christopher agree. actually uh, he had a, a like a mobile recording rig and and he and I and Shannon went up to this place in Mammoth California once and recorded some tracks that ended up being on the Nico record which is sort of the posthumous 
record that came sure. out. And uh, that was, I mean, Christopher got one of the best vocal takes he's ever done, which I well, on the Pusher song, yeah. uh, the cover, that was really great. Like that sounded real close to me of like what I imagine his voice in the room. And I can still hear it clear as a bell. Yeah. So it made sense to me when I heard that there was a documentary about him and about the band. I didn't realize there was a whole other layer that made a documentary um, such a fitting project to pursue, which is that he was obsessively filming himself the whole time. You all were obviously aware of this fact. I'm, I'm assuming very often when he was in the room, the camera was with him. We were annoyed by the fact, I would say, at the time. Now I'm grateful for it. But at the time, I just hated the camera being around. really hated it. That's my next question. How annoying was that? And in what specific ways was that annoying? He filmed my poops. And I'm not just yeah. saying yeah. I'm not even saying that as a joke. Like, he filmed everything. When I say everything, he filmed everything. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I was, I'm mortified by what the editors of this film have seen of me. <laughs> right. <laughs> I have no idea. You know, but it, it's because uh, I haven't seen all that footage. But, but yeah, like, I mean, like Christopher's saying, you know, you could be having a bathroom moment and, you know, minding your own business, you hear a little shuffle. You look up and there he is hanging over the stall or something, you know, like, I mean, he was, it was surreptitious a lot of times. And that was, uh, yeah. you, had be, you had to be aware of where that camera was. And there's actually a, a moment in the movie that illustrates this. Yeah, he, he would spy on you guys. Was that, I'm assuming, yeah. was a, more, a more than a one-time instance? Yeah, he, he did that a lot. You didn't, you never knew where the camera was. You know, he, he was smart enough to know to tape over the little red, the little red record light. Sure. You never really knew, you know what I mean? So, you know, it just, you know, we just, you just got used to it at, at, at a certain point, you know. What do you think his motivation was beyond sort of standard issue rock frontman narcissism? What do you think made him want to obsessively document, you know, most of his waking moments? I don't think he was a narcissist, by the way, but I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, Shannon was a real open, honest dude in a lot of ways, you know, uh, but he was, um, I, I think. Shannon had a, was was a was a searcher, you know. He was searching for answers to questions. He was looking to contextualize his life in the moment, and you can kind of see that happening in the film. And I, I don't know. I mean, he did spend time going back and watching things, and I think that kind of like, it reference it helped him like anchor reference wherever he was. But um, you know, he was. Uh, yeah, I, I think he was just trying to make sense of his life. And also, you know, he, I mean, he really did, con- and, and I, I'm sort of, you know, I'm hesitant to say this, but I mean, he, he did have a fascination with like, what happens after people die? What happens after rock stars die? How are they regarded? Like, like he was, con- he was interested in stuff like that. I think it was his journal too. I, I think our lives were <clears throat> so extraordinary that, you know, I was keeping a journal because things were happening so fast. Like it was like our lives were unreal for such a long period of time. I, you know, for me, I just was trying to keep track of it because I couldn't, I couldn't process everything. And I think he was doing the same thing. He's talking into the camera. The camera is his friend. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like a journal, like you're talking to yourself, but you're looking into a camera. So I think it was therapeutic for him. How long had it been since he passed before you saw any of this footage again? Uh, It was a good, a good long time, a good 12 something years in, in 2007, when we when we got together with Travis, uh, the first the, at first we were just sort of filming our new record and filming Travis and sort of filming the rebirth of the new band, so to speak. But at some point we realized that we were or Lisa 
his girlfriend and Nico were sitting on top of these tapes. And, um, you know, you just don't shoot that much material and not have any plans for it. So it just, it felt like our duty to, to make something happen with that footage. We knew how special it was to him because that's all we ever saw was him looking at the camera or filming us, you know? Right. Well, what you end up with is, you know, it's, uh, there's a nostalgic uh, element to watching it. Um, it's inspiring in a lot of ways. And then, you know, ultimately it's, it's a very heartbreaking document that you have. So I'm, I'm really glad that this uh, documentary exists and that I was able to watch it. Um, I want to talk you through some of the history of the band based off of, I stayed up late last night. I was going to go to bed and I was up till 1am. So I, the closer I got to the end, it just gets you, obviously it's, it's, it's a, it's like a slow motion, you know, car crash. Cause you, you, unfortunately you know how it's going to end and you start to see the presaging of that. So going back to the beginning of blind melon, how long did you all even know each other before you start having dialogue with entertainment lawyers and record labels? No. I mean, I was the one of the latter. Well, I guess Glenn was the last person in the band, but it happened super fast. Like these guys had met, like Roger said, these guys had met Shannon and I had met Brad a year before. And once they called me in and Glenn came out, it felt like stuff happened so fast. Yeah, We never played a live one. show. We didn't, play one live sh we didn't play one live show before we got a record deal. So it happened that fast for us. Yeah, but by, by the time uh, Christopher was in the band, and we already had serious and we had you know labels that were you know talking to us a bunch of them actually and and then uh once glenn joined and the band sort of you know gelled uh and, and sort of the sound was complete then it was, it was it was quick i mean it didn't take long you know uh, when somebody like shannon comes to town in los angeles and i still feel it to this day i i i know who the new cool kid is in town you know what i mean like you just the business is so small that I think when Shannon showed up to town, people were like, holy cow, a superstar showed up, you know? Yeah, he like, was famous in Hollywood within a yeah, week. Yeah, he was famous for not being, you know, he was famous just from being, going out to clubs and like being the craziest, you know, this crazy, handsome, charismatic, you know, personality in town. Everyone knew about him, so. He looked and behaved like a rock star. He did, immediately. You know? <laughs> and, and I mean, he, he had, and all of it was completely authentic. You know, right. there was, I mean, 100%. was no effort for him. And he, I don't think he was self-conscious ever in that way. Like, I don't think he was, like, how do I be cool? I mean, that was yeah. not in his, you know, in his internal monologue. You know, right. He and he had the added benefit that a, a solid 50% of the people who show up with that star charisma in, in Hollywood and sort of walk and talk the part don't actually back it up with the real high level musical ability so he, it also helped that he brought that to the table once you sat him he, down and put him in front of a microphone he really did i mean yeah. he, you know he, he had written change you know right away that's the first song he played for me and you know we were 19 20 years old and you know it was it was um he was much farther ahead as a songwriter than i than i was personally you know i want to um, i want to ask you about that first of all i didn't know that he i guess i would have assumed he played some guitar he played guitar far better than i had assumed that he he did he was he a wasn't very player. great at it but he did play he, yeah, he was no, he creative did. with it but he wasn't like a real player or like a yeah. he didn't sit around and practice scales or anything like that you know yeah right i didn't even know because i never saw you all perform live i didn't even know that he played on stage i figured you got two guitars you got that covered i didn't even know that he would be playing you know d chords on on an acoustic guitar um yeah. in terms of songwriting what percentage of Blind Melon's material would you say was kind of concocted in a room and what percentage was 
by and large, somebody bringing a, a pretty well fleshed out idea into the room. And in those instances, who were the people who were bringing this stuff in? How much of this stuff was him as a primary songwriter? Those are pretty easy songs because you can name them. It's, you know, on the first record, it's Change. Mm -hmm. And he brought in most of the time to go, too. That was kind of fully formed and we kind of jammed on it. But everything else, right, Rogers, was kind of jam and written by everybody in the room. Like, he, Rogers might have a riff and I might have a riff. We put them together. And then Shannon goes away and writes lyrics over them. Um, and then on the soup, soup record, you have, you know, Mouthful of Cavities, you know, you walk and you know those are fully formed songs that he's bringing in that are just finished mm -hmm. yeah usually it was like um you know they songs got pieced together ideas got pirated and stuck together on the other ideas but yeah. you you would have like a like a somebody would have a guitar you know progression and a, and, a, and an arrangement and the band would sort of work it up and uh then he would go away with it usually and um, and then he would come back, like you know, oftentimes in a very short period of time, and just be done. Yeah. And the stuff that we would give him would be very, um, like you would think you would listen to it and you'd be like, I don't know how anybody's going to sing over this because it's it's so weird and the arrangements were quirky and we didn't yes. really know what we were doing. So we took, we just thought, you know, we were making, you know, it sounded natural to us, but, but even looking back, listening back to it now, I can hear like, well, that's an odd choice, you know? Totally. Um, but he would figure it out. It was like a puzzle and, and he was really good at it. I don't think he knew he was allowed to say to us, hey, can you make that uh, four more measures? Or, hey, can you cut that part? He never, like, I think he just didn't know he was allowed to say that. Anything right. we delivered him, he just sang on it. That's the way it is. That's, that's the way it is. Be, and he would make it work and it was- He just fit it. He just make it work. I would, say, I would say probably, you know, 60%, 70% of the first record is like that. And then I don't know how that plays out on the second record. Everybody kind of wrote songs and brought them in for the second record, really. Or like, you know, the ideas were developed. More pushed out. Yeah. I love the moment where you're, you're at the Capitol Records building and you're actually signing the the record deal and i i'm probably reading too much into it but you guys are you're popping the champagne you're looking at the hollywood sign you're having the time of your lives and then somebody's like wait are you actually where are you signing that and i couldn't <laughs> as somebody who signed one or two regrettable contracts in my own life was there a rush to sign something that maybe should have been parsed a little bit more carefully yeah, no no i love life. yeah go ahead chris oh i was gonna say no i, I didn't you know i I don't think so at all. We were very well protected. We had incredible attorneys. You know, Shannon brought his, you know, his buddy Axel Rose as attorneys and managers. Uh, and so we were well protected. When we were signing that deal, we felt like we had made it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. Like, Good. I was pumped. Well, and well, we had because I knew that we were going to get money and I was going to get a nice guitar. Like, exactly. that's, that's all I cared about at that moment. That's like, it. The rest of it, like, okay, that'll happen. But. Let's get first things first. I need some stuff. Goals were small. The goals were small. <laughs> you know, I work with a lot of bands who like have this attitude towards record companies, like, oh, you know, you know, fuck the man, blah blah blah. And uh, man, we had a great experience in the major la label system, and I always say that. You know what I mean? Like, they were our friends. Experience. What's that, Rogers? The, the label president Hale Milgram understood us. Yeah, they were great, and even all the other people who worked there, like a lot of them, became our friends, and like. Yeah. 
we had a great experience, man. They made us rich and famous and all of our dreams came true. So like, I don't bum out on the major label system one bit, man, you know? Yeah. They had, <laughs> they, had a, they had a good team at that point. Dominique had a great team. Rampora was, was doing our publicity and she was fantastic for us. Yep. Just kill for us. And like, and they, you know, honestly, we screwed up a lot of things and they spent a lot of money on us for stuff. They stuck by believe, us. And I, I was privy to this later, Chris. I don't know I was like looking at some stuff and like how, far Hale uh, Milgram really like supported us. Like he went to bat for us after we had blown through a ton of money, made some bad videos and yeah, you know, a year and a year and a half into that record. He stuck with it. They really or, stuck with us, man. I'm, I'm really grateful for our experience with Capitol records. It was, it was all positive. Yeah. It, it would seem like there was a fairly unusual trajectory to where, you know, you, you get signed very, very quickly. You only have so many songs demoed. And then there's the initial push. I love the moment where Ricky Rackman has left his Aquanet at home and calls you the blind melon, having clearly done his homework <laughs> for that segment. Exactly. And then you're, you're out there for about a year or so. And as you said, the label stuck by you because it, it, it's very unusual for people to remain committed to a band for that amount of, of time. And then the single happens. Were you surprised you were even getting another single when the No Rain single happened? Yeah, I was. That was the fourth one, I think. Right. Yeah. We made some expensive videos, including one that we scrapped. Uh, you know, which costs, I don't know, many, many thousands of dollars. A couple hundred thousand, <laughs> probably, honestly. Yeah. And, you know, stuff was expensive back then, you know, so in this realm. But yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, we started to get a little bit nervous about that in the sense that, well, we just want to go home and make a new record because right. this one might not be working. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, we'd been out on the road for a year or so before No Rain really was a hit and um, had kind of exhausted ourselves, really. And so that happened. And then uh, by the time that sort of single cycle uh, wound up, I mean, we were toast. Yeah, I can only imagine. And it was, you know, two years was a pretty standard album tour cycle back then, and it was closer to a full three that you did. And, and That's, It was close, definitely closer to a full three for us because... Right. If you think about, I mean, our, our records were separated by three years. Yeah. Right, right. And that's the reason why that happened. I do want to talk through the trajectory of, of No Rain. First of all, was it on the original demo? Did you bring that in before the album? Yes. That song uh, was written actually before, uh, Brad wrote that song before we even met. Okay. Janet, and I remember, you know, Brad playing that on like Venice Beach. All right. He, he, he and his, uh, his girlfriend at the time was a singer. And they would go out and they there was another uh male female like singer couple that, and they would go out and they would do this and like you know mamas and papas songs and stuff like that right they were and called the guppies Perfect. yeah the guppies right and, and, and it fit within that context and um and then i don't know like when we, when we that, you know later on that it was on the demo and I, they didn't really make as big of a deal about that tune as they did about change that's the one they thought and and, and 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 it should have probably been as big of a hit. Yes. Uh, but it just, people were, I think, done with that record by then. You know, that, that, that system didn't work in that sense because, you know, basically what you would have is, you know, you put out an album of 12 songs or whatever, and then over the course of the next two years, the label would selectively curate and reintroduce a song to you as a single. And it's like, yes. but everybody's already heard it. It's hard to get that momentum going, especially at the end. So then, uh, did you actually get to interact with Chris Farley in the B costume? We did. Well, that surprised us. Yeah. We didn't know that that was going to happen. Uh, That's right. 
but we interacted with him and he was awesome, you know, because yeah, when you do that show, you go for a couple of three days before, you know, and they, they're, they're working up a bunch of skits that don't make it to the show and they're right, right. Out and, and they want you there to see what you're all about and to get you situated. But yeah, when we, you know, you go out and you stand there on your mark and you're ready for it to come back out of the commercial and we look over and there he is. And I mean, that guy, he was, I mean, we loved him by that point. He was so much fun. He was exactly like his, you think he was. He, he totally was. He really is that, that he was that guy. Um, we also hung out with him at Woodstock. And at one point there was, I remember Shannon was trying to get, uh, asked him if he would introduce us at Woodstock. And oh, he was going to happen. Yeah, his manager shot it down, but like I think Chris was like, "Yeah, sure," you know. But then for whatever reason, like you know, management got involved and it, it never happened. Well, we saw him. We hung out with him at Woodstock too. Uh, and then you did some dates with the Stones. It's documented in the documentary. All I can say, you did get to actually interact with the Rolling Stones. Oh yeah, yeah. I we shot pool with them every day. They brought a. Um, they had like a you know a, a proper English snooker table back that they brought with them. Right. And Ron Wood and Keith Richards liked to play, you know, and, and, and Brad was a shark, right? I mean, Brad's good. Probably great. So uh, they, they would come around and, uh, you know, Brad would just clean them up, you know. And, but they would show up every afternoon, you know, three in the afternoon with a, you know, a large Jack and Coke, you know, <laughs> big gulp size. So the Stones, but, uh, they, were, they were absolutely wonderful, honestly, to us. They were so charming and cool. And um, they were. I mean, they could have been anything they wanted to be or not even spoken to us. Yes. But they, were, they, were, they were just gentlemen. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that you had a positive uh, experience with them because you never know. You, hear, you also hear stories of people opening for big bands, and, and it was uh, made a point to, you know, do not look said big band in, in the eye. So it's. Our knees were shaking. I mean, you know, for the first, you know, couple of days, it took me two days to stop shaking, you know, around sure. like, you know, Richards. You know? We we had great experience with, with everybody we opened up for. We never really came across that that sort of band. You know, like we were in with Axel because Shannon was buddies with Axel. Right. So we were cool. Lenny Kravitz was like so damn kind to us, like hung out backstage. We had a little, we had a band practice uh, room that we traveled, you know, in, in arenas, we had a little room that we could jam and Lenny would come in and jam with us, you know, during the days. And so we, we, everyone that we, Neil Young was great to it. Like everyone was super kind. We never had a bad experience. I don't think. On tour. I'm trying to think if we did. Everybody seemed cool. All of our heroes were super cool to us. You yeah. Know? Well, yeah. I hope that you were a really good band, you know, like well, John, Johnny Rotten came into our, into our, uh, or John Lydon came to our trailer when we were on that MTV tour. And I remember, and he was, he was also cool to us, but like he walked in and said, well, it's a bunch of, you know, dirty hippies in here. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, with sort of tongue in cheek, you know, he was yeah. fun. Well, he's got a reputation to uphold. Right. Oh, and yeah, it's funny, you know, we did a show in uh, Vitoria, Spain about, uh, 10 years ago and the way it was set up was a big festival right and there was like there was like 50,000 people in the middle of the festival and there were stages on either end and so they were on the other end and we were on this end and we were going to start right after they stopped it was one of those kinds of deals yeah he would not go off they like and he's berating the audience it turned into like they're booing throwing stuff he's loving it finally they just cut his mic but like he went over and over. We went, we went on at like 2.30 in the morning or something because he went amazing. way late. Like he was supposed to be done hours ago and he just was being that guy and, you know, winding it up. Still got it. Still got it. 
Still got it. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm assuming when you're jamming backstage, we're on the road. It's notoriously hard to write on the road, but I'm sure you're putting together bits and pieces of stuff for the album that is to become Soup. I always was curious. There were lots and lots of guitar solos on the first album, and I do not believe there's one piece of guitar playing that I would consider a solo on all of Soup. There's lead parts. There's tons of lead parts, but they all repeat, which to me, that's a riff. That's a part that's not a solo the way that you're scratching your chin right now is leading me to believe that that was not a conscious decision no and i want well, to look like man what about my solo at the end of bernie i was I, I was all proud of my solo at the end that of was bernie. a great solo oh, oh i was like man he, that, does, he doesn't even consider that a solo that hurts i, I mean <laughs> look i, really I look, at the, track, I look at the track listing and i just don't know about this no you know what i, I will say that. this mike that we <laughs> we did start writing songs in a different way um we weren't writing bridges like bridges were at the end of the song yes they were it was a, yeah it was a different it de definitely is a different writing thing I, I do hear what you're saying like you don't really have the expansive like i wonder you know this you don't have like roger solo of i wonder in the middle like nothing long that's drawn out yeah i guess you're right the songs are all freaking three minute songs some of them barely get the three minutes on that record too this i mean I, I see what you're saying i mean i i, I mean both of us did solos in this record, but they're sort of in the context of they're, they're, they're not necessarily alone, basically. You know? Yeah. I mean, they're like, uh, they, they, they sort of, uh, they're wrapped in with the vocal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't think it was conscious. I think it was a, a natural evolution. Yeah, in fact, I wish I could change it now. Play more yeah, I know. I need to solo more on that record. <laughs> I am. You want to go back? We could go back and overdub on it, Christopher. Yeah, that's what, that's what we'll do. Yeah, People just, will love that. Just wail. <laughs> um, so, you know, obviously there is, there's the pressure to sustain the momentum, and the momentum from the first album owed largely to one single. How much conversation, if any, was there about do we try to repeat, repeat a template? I'm pretty friendly with Mark McGrath from Sugar Ray, and he'll tell you he knew he had a hit and it would really help his cause if he had another song that sounded, or maybe even two, that sounded quite a bit like Fly on, on well, the he, next album. He, is that a conversation or is just the conversation of concocting a single in general something you talk about? Well, we just found out that Mark McGrath is smarter than we are. Yeah. <laughs> we, didn't, we never thought like that. We, we never thought like that. Even on the first record, I don't, I don't remember hearing the word single ever. You know what I mean? Um, it was Except never until there wasn't really one that they liked. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> until they didn't have one. But I would say we were definitely not conscious. And that was not the thing that we were going to do was repeat. I think we were bucking against it a little bit, mm -hmm. too. I think we were annoyed that we had written an entire record, but all the focus was on this one song that really didn't sound like the rest of the record and didn't really feel completely like the entire band, I would say. Sure. Oh, that's fair. a little less of. There's a little, there's all of Brad on there, and there's a little less of everybody else. So I think there was a little frustration when it, when it comes to that. So I don't think we spoke about it, but we were definitely not conscious of writing another one of those songs that didn't sound like our band. Right. We were grateful for the song and grateful for the hit, but I think we wanted to write something that felt like all of us more. I don't know, you know you can actually just do something like that either. I mean, I think that we kind of instinctively realize that that's a fool's errand because, yeah. you know, it's, it's really hard. That song is a hit song on a different level than many other hit songs. You know, it's still a hit song in a sense because it's still played. It you know? is. 
Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, there's a lot of songs from the era of in, or any era that, that are hits, but they sort of vanish over time. And, um, you know, but if you, if you're trying to say, well, we're going to write a timeless hit song, that's our, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, ultimately you would like to do that again, but to try it, you know, you kind of know that's not going to happen because once you're, you learn like how songs actually happen, you realize that that's not really possible unless you're just a, somebody who churns them out and has that gift, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's funny because it just seems like you either are that kind of musician, songwriter, or you're not. I've had uh, Desmond Child on this show. Mm -hmm. And Desmond Child's not waiting for the magic pixie dust to fall into the room. When you hire him, he shows up to give you a chorus that your mom will hum. You know, right. And what a track record that guy has. It's like he, he knows like mm -hmm. he knows some stuff I don't know. Right. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, you know, and he'll tell you, he'll break down. Enough time has passed, he can kind of tell you what the, the I wouldn't, I don't want to call it a formula because he's more talented than that. But then tell us what it is. Tell us the formula, please. But it is a, it is a formula, <laughs> but you still need that extra magic dust that happens to a yeah. song. Yeah, he says all There's of, the, all the song titles need to be, um, need to be opposites. How can we be lovers if we can't be friends? Yeah. Yeah, so there you go. That's, uh, I, you've been taken to Desmond Child School. I know he starts from a title. I've studied him a little bit. I yeah. know he's, he has lists and lists of titles. Right. So when he shows up, it's like, look at my title list, mm -hmm. and we're going to write a song with these titles. Yeah, pick a title, any title. <laughs> I mean, that's an exercise that you can do, you know, in any sort of way. You know, if you're, if you, if you're an author, for example, and you, you, you people will start with a nugget of an idea, and you can develop it. It's like, okay, what is the very next sentence that naturally flows from this? You know, it's a step-by-step -step thing and, and that that applies in, in, in songwriting as well right um, you know the thing about songs with you know when you incorporate music uh, to lyrics it's like it can happen either way you know you might have words that that indicate a sort of rhythmic pattern or something or, or, or a feeling you go with that or, or there's music and you're like oh I gotta fit something over this so you know a lot of it is about cadence and uh, rhythm in, in the actual in the way the words play out of the music, I think you know. Yeah, totally. Yeah, no, I, I think for the vast majority of of the rest of us, it's you, you just do your best to take it up to a certain line, and then you just hope the magic happens. And very often, it's a fluke of the recording, you know, is uh, that that makes a song a, a song pop. It's outside of your. Yeah, and you see, control. like when when a singer tries to put, uh, you know, when a singer is like forming words into phrases that are rhythmic over a piece of music with melody. If you, you know, when you, sometimes you can read the words out and they're like, well, that sounds like a person who can't complete a sentence. Yeah. And then you hear it in the song and, and, and it's like, oh yeah, yeah. It's because it's a, it's too, it's more than just the words. It's the feeling of how they're delivered. Yeah, it is. Yeah. That's why, you know, like there's certain bands who are so good at it that the words don't matter. Right. Led Zeppelin. Oasis. I love Oasis. Yeah. Like, I don't, I mean, I don't know what any of those songs mean, but who cares? Yeah, I know, but Live Forever is just... Oh, I love that one. Yeah, Don't Look Back in Anger. I mean, honestly, he's a, he's an amazing songwriter. But anyway, we're not here to talk about Oasis, but I do <laughs> yeah, love it. I do. It's funny, because in my mind, the two of you are kind of linked together. I took a cross-country road trip after I finished high school, and I can remember at one point of that being somewhere in the middle of nowhere and hearing... Uh, the first time on the radio, what's the story? Morning Glory, the title track, yep. which was technically the lead single before they unleashed the onslaught of Wonderwall and what have you. And I can remember another stop on that trip actually being crashing on somebody's couch and seeing the music video for Galaxy. So it's very, very funny to me that you that you mentioned those. I was I was yeah, into they, both of those um, too. 
they were right after us because my memory of Oasis is we did a loop when the soup record came out, the only loop, and we were playing kind of smaller clubs, just, you know, just because it was a new record and we kind of started smaller venues. And my memory is being backstage and these young girls were just like, oh my God, this band was here last week and these brothers are so <laughs> handsome and they're so cool and blah, blah, blah. I remember hearing about them and then listening to it and going, oh shit, like somebody's knocking us off the block and the new kids in town and they're taking over. Like I felt it. I was like, oh shit. You know what I mean? Because it came on strong when it happened. Yes, you know? it did. It did. It did. Yeah. Those guys got a bad rap. For, I mean, they... You can't rip off the Coke song and not expect people to notice it. But that notwithstanding, there's some really incredible stuff there. I loved everything about it because in the grunge days, you weren't allowed to be a rock star. You weren't allowed to like money. You weren't allowed to like girls. You weren't allowed to like the whole being a rock star thing, although we all were. Yep. They came through town and said, we are rock stars and we love money and we love cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> they were they were, they were they were more truthful because we loved all those things too. We just were in grunge days and we're like, no, we're not, we're not rock stars. We drive a truck. Yeah. yeah it was the I mean? least fun time to be a rock star. I think it really kind of was of music because like fun was, had been overruled. We used to send limbos away. Like, no, we don't want a limo. You know, but like, those, guys wait, wait. To, those guys showed up to town. They're like, send five limos, yeah. man. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's how we roll. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Guitar limos. player needs one too. And yeah. mine, better be, mine better be better than Christopher's. Exactly. <laughs> um, so a couple more questions about, about the Soup record. As a listener, I got the feeling that a lot of the songs, maybe I'm wrong, were about drugs and about drug addiction and even the foreshadowing of death. You know, 10 feet away, my daddy buries me. Needle, fetal, someone's pouring warm gravy all over me. I mean, that's a very, it's a very evocative imagery. Was this something that you talked about with the band? I mean, am I wrong about what those songs were about? Or do you go we acted on it? Yeah. Shannon, a, a lot of these, boy, a lot of these songs seem to be about, about drugs. Are you okay? You know, I got to tell you, man, I wasn't prepared or mature enough to say what you just said. And when people ask me my regret in life, one of them is being mature enough to sit Shannon down and saying, man, you are freaking me out. I'm scared. I mean, maybe we said that at times, but not like, I'm going to shake you specifically saying, I mean, I, I mean, I was scared, but I just didn't have the like maturity to like know how to get him into a rehab. You know what I mean? Like I didn't know how to do that. We had never experienced that. And quite honestly, he wasn't the only guy that was having a party. He just didn't know how to stop the party. Everyone else knew when to stop the party. He just didn't know when to stop when to stop, you know? So it was odd to point the finger at him when maybe one night I'm with him till sunrise hanging out. Yeah, we didn't have songs. that credibility, but we, you know, look, we 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 brought in some people, you know, that were, knew what they were doing. And, um, and they really encouraged us to take a stand with him. And, uh, and we tried and, and, you know, but you think follow through with a bunch of, you know, 20 early 20s dudes who who have just been handed the keys to the kingdom you know and yeah. in the process of driving it into the ditch it's yeah. like, i don't know like uh uh you know we, we weren't really capable i mean you know of course looking back now we i can see oh we could have done this and that and but who knows anybody's ever going to die when you're that age yes and of all people him because he had more resilience and like, you know, like Shannon was a very, um, he was a very athletic 
he was like a great athlete. I mean, he was an all American, uh, you know, athlete in high school wrestling. He still has records in the state of Indiana, I think for, uh, like the like pole vaulting or something crazy. Yeah, he does. Yeah. And, uh, and he was a third degree black belt type guy. I mean, I, I always think, you know, that, that Shannon would probably be an MMA fighter if he were around today. I mean, he was indestructible in that way. And he, I mean, you know, he got a lot of fights. He was good at it. But um, it was just, uh, you just never, there's so much vitality in him that you could, it's almost, it was just inconceivable that that would be, that would go away. Yeah, I understand. Us. But we, we did, did do an intervention. We did try and we brought in some professional help and we, and we did try an intervention and we put Shannon in, you know, I lost track, but a, a good two or three rehabs. Yeah, he did. I think he did three stints that, that I remember. And, yeah. you know, we canceled tours. Like we came home from Europe once. Yeah. It was a real blow to us, you know, uh, like we said, okay, he's got to go home. You know, we have to go home. Um, because I think he had just gotten out and we were over there. And, uh, uh, you know, he, I think he just felt like I'm going to, you know, this is going to go somewhere we don't need to go. And I think everybody saw it. And we, so we went home, but um, you know, we did stuff like that, but you know, obviously what we should have done is, is close down shop until further notice until he was sort of ready to do it, you know? And he would tell you, I'm ready to do it. Let's go. Let's, I mean, of course, he wants to of course. Stuff and it's like, you, you just, you know, it, it is like Christopher said, the greatest regret of our lives. I think probably well, you know, hindsight, of course, is 2020. Yeah. Why was the song Soup not on Soup? I feel like it would have been one of the better songs on Soup. <laughs> you want to take this one, Rogers? You want to take this That's one, Rogers? That's right, you know, because it was probably as much my fault as anybody's. Uh, I don't know. Like, I, I always felt like, um, for some reason, I don't know, I, I just didn't get it. it. You know, it was a song that Christopher had this sort of, this, that entire, like, acoustic part at the beginning he had written with uh, Shannon and it was really beautiful. And then I had kind of a different thing and I, I uh, sort of where the drums come in, you know, at the end and we stuck and we were up in mammoth and we figured yeah. to stick that together. Yeah. We finished. It. it just seemed like I felt in my head, maybe I just had it lodged in my head that, Oh, we're going to like, you know, further arrange this or something. And, and um, at the time, I guess it just felt uh, maybe it was like I, incomplete or something i didn't want to abandon the song but it it, it, it didn't i just missed it you know and, and i think maybe i was uh, somebody else must have felt like that because i wasn't going to get my way by myself <laughs> yeah, you, it, i was just, i think you're right you know i was outvoted and and it was it wasn't just rogers you know um i think i think the way we chose songs for the soup record changed because at that point we realized what a song's value was financially and the first song, no one knew what the value was of a song, and we were all truly in it together. It truly was, you know, written as one, everybody. But the second a royalty check comes in and you go, oh, one song on that record means I can build my pool I want to build. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I got an inflatable that... pool because I didn't, you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think at that point, you know, at that point, you're you then you have to fight for your song on the record, which we didn't have to do that on the first record because yeah. we thought we we're all in it together. And it was like, oh, that's cool. I'll keep my song off. Let's use your song. Your song's dope. But it was like more that feeling. But and, on the super record, point, it's like, I want my song on the record now. You know, 
that point we ended up realizing, you know, I think, and, and working out our sort of internal agreement to, to alleviate that, but. Yeah, we yeah. had realized that was gonna be a problem moving forward. If, if we continue to write songs individually and fight for whose song gets on the record. So we, we actually did remedy that right before Shannon passed away. Yeah. We said, we're gonna go back to, you know, splitting everything and that way no one's thinking to themselves. I have to have my song on the record. You just want the best songs on the record. Everybody had input into songs, you know, into most yeah. of them. And so it just felt like, I mean, I know that for me personally, like for any song on any of our records, for the most part, with the exception of a couple, I feel ownership over them, even though if, if even if it's a song I didn't write, because oh, yeah, me too. I have to get there or I don't want it on the record, basically. Yeah. That's the way I feel. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> anyway, so, but in the end, it really kind of worked out for us in a good way, in a sense, because we were able to put it on the posthumous record and right. it really kind of entered that whole album. Worked I, out great. Yeah. So how did you feel when you finished Soup and you're turning it into the label? You feel like you've done your job? How, how does the label receive it? Did you feel like they were enthusiastic about putting you guys back out there and promoting it? They didn't really like it. I thought we made a masterpiece. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was, you know, 20 something and you know, my ego was as big as it could be. And I just thought we absolutely made Exile Main Street, the new version, Blind Melon style. I thought it was a complete and total masterpiece. It so it felt like we did that. Like it, after we did it, it, it physically, like we felt it like did. this made Exile Main Street. But yeah, uh, I, same thing. Like we, we were sort of like, you know, when you do something like that, you think, of course, everybody's going to see this like we see it because it's obvious, you know? Yes. Yeah. And you're delusional. We were shocked. You're delusional we were, in that way. Yeah. Well, no, you're not delusional. For what it's worth, I think you're completely right. I'll tell you straight up. I was like the shiny pants Britpop guy hanging out with a bunch of more of the, <laughs> the dirty hippie types. So I ran with a lot of people who were big Blind Melon fans from the first album. And I was like, yeah, they're cool. That's all right. Soup's the one I responded to. I, to me, it's clearly the superior album. Mm -hmm. We thought so, but the company, you know, at that point, what happened, you know, we're talking about what a great relationship they had with the company. Well, I'll, what I will say now is that relationship changed during the soup record because uh, major lab labels, capital notoriously changes a president every couple years. So for us, we were it really at a completely different record company. All of our homies that helped us be successful and had ownership over our success we're all fired and a new group of people came into Capitol. Gary Gersh is now the president and we deliver a record and nobody has really any, they didn't sign us. They didn't, it was all these new people. So they were like, eh, we don't hear a single and that's a weird ass record. And it doesn't sound like no rain, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't their baby anymore. So how, what, what happens to the band dynamic when you're out on the road and it seems like the, there's, it's touched on very briefly, the journalists who are going to talk to other bands at some festival or, or, or show that you're, you're, you're playing to feel like you've kind of got this stillborn release. What is that? How does that change the room with you guys? Well, it was a brief time, thankfully, because we weren't out there very long. Mm -hmm. We toured for like a month and then Shannon passed away. But I got to tell you, I was bummed out. I felt it. When that Rolling Stone, you know, back in the day before the internet, Rolling Stone was the gatekeeper. Yes. You know, they, they told you who was cool, who wasn't cool. And, you know, so when they tell everybody the baby that you just made that you think is a masterpiece is a piece of shit and they give it two stars or one and a half stars or whatever. The Not one and a half stars. I'll never forget yeah, that. Yeah, you know, they... um. 
single-handedly they tell the world to no, not go listen to your record. So it was a real bummer, and we felt it. But we also felt like right at the end, right before he died, I remember also feeling like, okay, well, let's go make another record and we'll show them. You know what I mean? Like, well, let's we also get back. felt like with you know time on the road and stuff, and people. I mean, we were never a band that you're going to listen to one time and be like, oh man, that's my favorite band. It's like it kind of would grow on you because the songs maybe had a little bit of of complexity to them in terms of like what's on the radio. But um, so yeah, we were. Uh, I think we were feeling like we're going to tour it out and build it up the hard way and do yep. all that stuff. Maybe that that was crazy, but. You know, I really don't know, like, why, why what happened, to, and things happened to us in that way. Because I know, like, the record wasn't a one and a half star record. I know that. Yeah. That guy, Shannon, uh, you know, really pissed off a lot of journalists. <laughs> he didn't trust anybody, really. Uh, and so um, that in that realm and. Um, I mean, he had good friends in, in the meet, you know, journalists that were, uh, you know, who were on our side. But w I don't know why Rolling Stone would put us on the cover in 1994 and then in 1995, you know, like. Not, Tear us down. Not just say we made a bad record, but like really kind of a, like ignore and abandon and savage us. And even after she yeah. passed away, like I felt like, you know, this guy deserved more due than he was getting, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know the politics of it, but I know, you know, the by reputation, Rolling Stone is famous for playing favorites. Well, but yeah, it's nice to be a favorite yeah. by Rolling Stone. Well, but it, by, it by implication, if you're not the favorite, <laughs> then, when you get, you, they kick you out of the click, right? Right, right, so, right. Um, I mean, you know, look, it's inconsequential, really, in the overall scheme of things, but it, it, it did sort of color the, the mood at the time. It's got to be frustrating and a lot of things to, the album endures and its reputation has grown over the years and for Shannon to not be around to, to see that. Yeah. Now it ends up on, on best records of the nineties all the time. I see, I see the super record on, on that list and I'm always like, man, where were you guys a long time ago? You know? Yeah. Um, but I'm proud and it is, it is too bad. He's not around one to see the movie he made. Yeah. And, uh, and two to realize that anybody still gives a fuck about the band 25, whatever, almost 30 years later, you know, I wish he was around to see that for sure. Yeah. Well, I have to let you guys go. I've taken enough of your time. Um, I definitely recommend people check this out. I think part of the appeal of your band and of Shannon was that you felt like you knew him to listen to his, to his songs. And it's nice to really complete that picture and to actually really spend very personal time with him for, uh, for an hour and a half. So yeah, I definitely recommend everybody check out blind melon and, and soup. If you never got around to it, as, as you just said, it's one of the best albums of the nineties. And uh, I recommend everybody check out the, the documentary. Um, and also a new album is in the works for blind melon. Yes, it is. We're finishing the new record right now. We just released yesterday. We released two singles, um, which will be up on your streaming services, I think today or tomorrow. But uh, right now you could go check it out on YouTube. Uh, there's like lyric videos and stuff and we're finishing a record, yeah. That's great. And the documentary is called uh, All I Can Say. Thank you very much, gentlemen, for, for your time. Thanks a lot, Mike. Take care. Appreciate it, bye-bye.